Welcome to God Podder, a podcast produced by St. Paul's Theological Centre based at Holy Trinity, Brompton in London. Theologians Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams and the occasional guests join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology and just about anything else. We have Mike Lloyd over here. And we also have the wonderful Archie Coates on this side. And for those of you listening to Godport at this very moment, we've just had a fly past, especially in honour of this seminar by the RAF. Um, and we are at Home Focus in Pakefield, Suffolk, in England. And this is HTB's annual jamboree, week away, go mad in the countryside type holiday. So, we are going to be looking at this area of spiritual gifts, and um, so let's go for the first question. We're told to um, seek gifts, but when does it become a specialist ministry as opposed to our general calling? I.e., if somebody prays for the gift of healing, when does it become a ministry? Thank you. Who wants to have a go at that question first? I think it's a matter of um, finding out that that's a strength finding out that the things that you, as you practice that gift, as you use it, that it's um, helpful to people, that people find it particularly useful, that it does the job that gifts are for, which is to build up the body. Uh, And if you find that, uh, that obviously encourages you to do it more, and uh, if that is then confirmed and recognized and accepted by the community, then that is obviously the gift that you have, and you should carry on doing it. if you know, if if I thought I had a gift of teaching and everybody walked out every time and everybody said that was really really unhelpful, I think I would a get discouraged and b probably should get discouraged from doing it. Uh, it's a matter of uh, whether it is doing what gifts are for, which is to build up the body of Christ in such ways to prepare it for service. Um, and if it's doing that, then that's probably the gift that you've got. Is it like um, I mean a bit like a doctor i mean not not your kind of doctors but the kind of medical doctors proper you know. ones yeah real doctors <laughs> who help um and uh, <laughs> as i understand it a doctor begins with a sort of general practice a general training but then uh, they tend to specialize often and i wonder whether that's a bit the same with these gifts i think i'm i quite like to try them all i'm open to all of them at any time and maybe as I try them, that some um, seem to encourage and work uh, more than others. And I think I'll really take every opportunity to heal because that one, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to do the other ones. And uh, it's almost that God leads you into things. And so you're the first to put your hand up when there's an opportunity to use one of them. But I um, like to keep the whole thing rather general because I suppose I feel that God can use me in any way at any time. I think one of the other things to say about it is that when you recognize something to be more than just the general calling that you have as a Christian and it becomes something which you, uh, uh, which, you, know, you begin to say, well, that is a, a gift that God has given to me. It's actually when other people recognize it. Hmm. Um, it strikes me that spiritual gifts are things which we often don't always recognize within ourselves and sometimes that's something which other people have to, to confirm uh, within us. Um, you might take a gift like, for example, the gift of evangelism. I mean, we're all called to, to speak about our faith and to try to uh, pray for and seek to, to bring our friends and, and family uh, to faith in Christ. But um, but every now and again, I recognize someone who has a, just, just a really natural gift at being able to talk about faith in a, in, a, in a very ordinary language in a way that doesn't make people feel they're being browbeaten or or kind of, you know, pressured into faith. And um, and who, who regularly seems to get into those kind of conversations and those conversations very often lead to people coming to faith. Now, that's the time, it seems to me, when 
when either yourself you begin to think, yeah, maybe I have got a particular gift in that area, or particularly when other people come in and say, well, yeah, this is, I really think this is something that God has given a gift to you. So maybe part of our our ministry to each other in the area of spiritual gifts actually is to be able to confirm the gifts in each other, rather than just about recognizing our own gifts. We've got uh, we've got the question about interpretation. Uh, HTV, we hear quite a lot about speaking in tongues, but we don't seem to hear much about um, interpretation of tongues. Just wondering about that. I think there may, may be two uh, things going on here. I think um, in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a gift of tongues, and then linked to that is a gift of an interpretation of a tongue. And uh, in that instance, and we do actually have it sometimes in uh, HTB on a Sunday, but because of that huge um, number of people, it's not always easy to manage. Someone might uh, give a tongue, and then we wait for an interpretation and an interpretation. And that would be, I think, uh, a message uh, from God uh, to us. And the other kind of... Um, uh, in which case I think that should always be um, interpreted because it doesn't mean anything without it uh, and it's for the whole body the other kind of thing which I think is going on sometimes is what I would understand 1 Corinthians 14 to be where it mentions about uh, a gift of uh, about speaking in a tongue and it's speaking to God so it's from us talking to God in other words it's like a prayer language and uh, it talks um, uh, there in terms of it being something that edifies um, yourself, uh, ourselves, individual people. And sometimes I suppose that really would be more of a private gift of tongues. But sometimes you're right, it, the private gift, I think, and this is where sometimes the confusion comes, you hear it in the corporate public setting where there's not a chance of a, an interpretation because it's not doing that job. It's actually our expression of praise. So quite often, I suppose, one hears it uh, in a worship time. And why I um, think it's, um, where I think it's best managed is when it, it, it bubbles up as a true expression of the Spirit leading us in our praise over and beyond, beyond and beyond our words to God. In which case there wouldn't be an interpretation. Uh, but that might explain why it sometimes that happens in a corporate setting. Thank you, Archie. Mike, anything to add? I don't think so. I, um, I don't know whether this is a convenient point to, to do the one about singing in tongues as well, because it, it kind of fits in, I think, at the, at the same point. Um, and I think you know, people sometimes say, well, we're not, you're not meant to use tongues in, in public worship, so why do we sing in tongues? I think you've got to look at the principles that Paul talks about there. It seems to me there are two principles. One is order. That's one of his main concerns is, is order in public worship and in the, the, the Christian community. And the, the other principle is that you don't want one person being edified and everybody else not being. Uh, he said the problem with tongues in public worship is that it's fine for the person who's doing it. He's being built up, but what, or she, but what about everybody else? Whereas, of course, if you're all uh, singing in tongues together, then it seems to me that that fulfills both those principles, uh, that everybody is singing in tongues, so everybody is being built up, uh, and as, as long as it's done in, a, in an orderly, dignified, and controlled kind of way, uh, then it fulfills the order thing as well. It's no different in that way from singing a chorus or singing a hymn or, or whatever. Um, so that's why I don't think it infringes uh, the principles and the rules that Paul gives us there. I think the, the other thing to add about it is that, following on from Archie's point about um, different, you know, meaning different things by, when we say the, the gift of, of tongues, 
And um, clearly, that what you actually find in Acts chapter two, when on the day of Pentecost, is I think a slightly different thing from what we find in Acts in, in one Corinthians twelve and fourteen. Um, in Acts chapter two, it's clearly the case that the apostles speak in a tongue, which is actually other languages that were not naturally their own. Um, that's why the people from all over the Jewish diaspora, who happened to be in Jerusalem that day, say, this is amazing, we hear the works of God being proclaimed in our own language. Now, how do these ignorant Galilean peasants and fishermen suddenly speak these other languages um, that, that people from the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and everybody else can somehow understand? Now, that that seems to be a particular kind of uh, of gift, which is sometimes called xenolalia, which is sort of the, the the speaking of other languages, which is different from glossolalia, which is the the more kind of ecstatic speech kind of idea. So I think we just have to be quite careful about you know just when we think about tongues, that actually covers a range of different things within the New Testament, from uh, a tongue which is actually another language. You know, if I was suddenly able to speak Chinese, even though I can't, I've never learnt it. Um, and that seems to be something which I th- it's quite rarely uh, evidence elsewhere in the New Testament. You do hear stories of it still in the present day. Um, again, it's quite rare, much rarer, I think, than the other than the other two. Um, but then there are the two that, that Archie's talking about. One, which is, if you like, a, an addressing God, uh, and then a word from God to us, which is a tongue, which then needs an interpretation when it's done in public. So uh, we, I think we have to make those kind of distinctions, and that helps us to begin to make sense of some of those uh, those passages that are there. <laughs> Okay, should we um, just, uh, one at the top there, about what are the greater gifts? Is there an order of gift? And, um, uh, you know, what are the more important ones? What are the greater gifts? We're told to eagerly desire them. Which are they? And is there an order? What are the greater gifts? Well, I suppose, I mean, this is something that 1 Corinthians 14 talks about. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And this is especially the gift of prophecy. And um, it's quite interesting that he seems to rank prophecy quite quite high. And actually, when Paul talks about it, he, he actually seems to, to, to rank that gift um, higher than, than, than many others. Now, again, prophecy, I think, probably is something that covers a range of different activities, um, which might include a prophetic word, whereby um, someone senses that God has given a specific word to the, um, the people of the congregation. Uh, it might include a specific, specific prophetic type of preaching as well. Uh, sometimes in the history of the church, prophecy has been seen very closely to, to, to preaching. And, and, and I guess, you know, you've sometimes heard that kind of, of, of sermon that somehow seems to just put its finger exactly on what needs to be said at that, that, that point. Sometimes preaching can have that prophetic uh, quality to it. And, um, but it does seem that behind that, I think, there is a, there is a, a kind of fundamental thing about the, the, um, the gifts of the Spirit that they are primarily given uh, for the common good. That is the purpose of the gifts. The gifts are for the building up of the body rather than the indi- building up of the individual. Now, they can build up the individual, but it's as if Paul says, well, that, that's fine, but that's actually not as important as the building up of the body. And I think it reflects Paul's very strongly corporate understanding of what it means to be Christian. Um, and I think it's, it's something actually sometimes that perhaps the, the, the Catholic churches and the Orthodox churches have stronger sense of than we do as, as Protestants. We sometimes think, you know, we come to faith one by one and then, then we kind of gather together voluntarily in this thing called church. Um, whereas I think often in Paul's understanding, he understands, you know, we're first of all Christians because we're members of the church. And then we're Christians as individuals. There's a very strong corporate nature to Paul's understanding of the church. And that kind of makes sense, I think, of his understanding of gifts because the gifts are given primarily so that we might 
build each other up. So whatever gifts God has given to me, um, the main point of them is that not so that I feel better and that I can express my praise to God and that I can be more you know, encouraged as a Christian, but they're primarily for the sake of my other brother, Christian brothers and sisters. And so if there's a ranking of the gifts, it's the most important ones seem to be the ones that are most useful in building up other Christians. And the ones that are probably, you know, still good, but less important are the ones that are just about my own personal um, edification. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's not just uh, uh, what Graham was saying, that, that that's Paul's corporate view of, of what it is to be a Christian coming out. It's also precisely the whole polemic of the letter uh, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, here are these guys who put a lot of stress on the dramatic and the spectacular and the ecstatic, and therefore they value tongues very, very highly indeed. Um, and Paul is actually saying, well, hang on a minute, that may build you up, but it's, what matters is what builds up the body. And therefore let's put the undramatic uh, and, and those which build up higher than those which are kind of dramatic and spectacular and which can easily puff up. Um, and so there's a, he puts in ordinary, boring, mundane things like administration um, uh, to say that is just as important and just as valuable because it holds the whole body together. If you don't have good administration, the whole thing's going to fall apart. Um, he puts uh, enormous st stress on um, prophecy because that builds up. Uh, and, of course, in the middle, he says, actually, more important than any of these is love. Uh, that's at the top of the list. Uh, not as a, not that it's a, you know, it's a fruit rather than the gift, but nevertheless, that's where his polemic is going. Uh, it's not the spectacular. It's the ordinary, humdrum, difficult, daily business of living lovingly as a Christian community. Uh, and that that is, is where the thrust and the emphasis lies. Is that linked then to the thing about the unpresentable parts, you know, which part of the body... I've always rather liked that as a visual aid because we've all got a body and we all know that the bits that we are unpresentable are as critical as the bits which one sees. And what would you rather be? Well, you'd rather be a, a hand than stuck in a smelly old shoe as a foot. Um, but if you, you and your mate were uh, kidneys and you didn't turn up to church one day and then there was a call that, you know, there's been a renal failure and help it's because you didn't turn up. And it seemed to me that every part, whether it's seen or unseen, is absolutely critical. Yeah. Kidneys sound a little bit like a Woody Allen film. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's right on the presentable part, isn't it? Because that comes in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 where he's talking about the body um, which is made up of all these different things, the foot and the, the, the eye and the ear and everything, and that, that, that all of those parts are, are, are needed. And it's, a, it's one of those sort of slightly delicate bits of language that Paul uses where you, you think he could be a lot ruder than he is, but um, he does talk about these, these different parts of the body. Um, but I think that's right. I think he's, he's actually saying that, particularly in this context of, of the church in Corinth where they valued particular special kind of more dramatic gifts higher than, than than other less dramatic gifts he's actually saying to them now hang on a minute you know you all need each other within this church um and it, there's a lot of evidence i think to suggest in one corinthians you had a a special rather elite group who were probably fairly wealthy um, they probably liked the preaching of apollos because he was a sort of flashy speaker he was a sort of Deslinum of, of Corinth, um, very smooth, very kind of you know naturally charismatically gifted. Whereas Paul was Paul was not a good speaker. Um, you know it says in two Corinthians, you know I was idiotes to logo is the Greek. You know I'm, I'm an idiot when it comes to speaking. That's literally what it means. You know I'm really bad at it. 
And so uh, they were kind of saying, well, Paul's not very important, really, but Apollos, he's the great guy. And, and, and Apollos was a very charismatic character, probably had many of these very dramatic gifts. And so actually what Paul is doing in the letter, he's actually saying, well, well, actually this little elite group who think they've got, they've got power, they've got wealth, they've got you know, apparently spiritual power, who are kind of lording it over the others. Well, that's, that's, that's not the way, the Christian way. Um, it's, we need every single part of the, uh, of the church. Um, the less presentable as well as the presentable parts, the, the, the flashy, the dramatic, as well as the, as, the, as the more mundane. So I think that is what, something of what that means. What he's saying is, you know, there are bits that we present to the world, our faces, for instance, um, and there are bits that, that we keep covered up. However, the bits that we keep covered up are quite important to us as men and women. And he's actually saying, apply that to the body. There, there are those who have the kind of public face and who are in the public eye and who uh, get all the attention. Um, but actually those who are in the background doing unseen and unvalued jobs are just as important, if not more so, than those of us who are up the front doing the kind of upfront stuff. Um, and again, he's just reminding them again, a basic gospel reversal of values. That's what it is. Don't be taken with the flashy and the successful and the spectacular. Go with those who are doing faithful, mundane, ordinary stuff uh, and give them a bit of credit and attention and thanks and glory. <laughs> Good, thank you. We had a question again about um, about unity, didn't we? How do we maintain unity? Was that right? Who was asking that one? We, we are always told to have unity, but how, how can this really be done, particularly as everyone thinks that they have the truth? So there's a question there about how unity is maintained within the church, and I suppose particularly in connection with this issue of the, of the spiritual gifts, how the spiritual gifts in particular contribute towards the maintaining of the unity of the church. Any thoughts on that? I think the first thing to say is one of the things Paul says is make every effort to maintain the bond of the spirit uh, or what when was it? The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, and the thing that that says to me is it takes effort. <laughs> it's nothing, it's, it isn't something that happens naturally. It's not something that's easy. It's something that's done hard. And we know that actually. And a bit of me, my heart sinks uh, when I read that and think, oh, goodness, you know, all, all my other relationships are hard. <laughs> uh, even when I go to church, it's going to be hard as well. Um, and, and just as a little kind of sideways uh, tip there, it seems to me that that's where the friendship is really important, which is the one kind of relationship you don't have to work terribly hard at, in my experience. It's the one that kind of happens anyway. Whereas you know, marital relationships and romantic relationships and family relationships and uh, work relationships and church relationships all take effort. Um, so enjoy and luxuriate in your friendships, uh, which will give you a bit of strength to, to make the effort. And I think it does take effort. Um, Graham, you look as if you're about to come in there. Do I? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, wish, okay. Wishful okay. thinking I will say on something. my yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the, um, the important points about the, the spirit. Well, I think one of the very interesting things about the way the New Testament talks about the spirit is that, on, on the one hand, the, it's t the spirit is the spirit of unity. He, you know, there is one spirit, just as there is one faith, one baptism. There is one spirit. So, the spirit, if you like, is the one who holds us together uh, as the church. So, there's a very, very important stress upon unity of the spirit. But at the same time, the spirit is also this spirit of diversity, and. Um, 
you get, you know, in 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kind of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works in all of all of them in all men. So you've got this this principle of the Spirit being the Spirit of unity and the Spirit of diversity. And I think that's that's fascinating because that holds together something really, really important. Because we, we you know, you, you can get um, churches where uh, everyone's the same. And it can feel like, you know, Christian faith is going to make you all into clones of each other. And if you become a Christian, you're just going to come exactly like all the others. And it's going to be really boring. And, and you're going to have all your distinctives just eroded and wiped out. And you're becoming an exact clone of everyone else. And that can be quite a scary thought for, you know, if you're coming into the church from the outside. You know, you come along and you see all these people, you know, singing the same songs and worshipping the same way. And, you know, that can be quite a scary thing. You're going to lose your individuality as, as, a, as a person. Um, and yet on the other hand, you know, the idea of a church which was so varied, just pulling in all kinds of different directions with no sense of togetherness at all, that would, that would be equally scary as well. Um, because you'd have all the kind of friction and the difficulty and the arguments that, that, that we've been uh, referred to in our, in our, in our question. And, um, and so it seems to me that, that, you know, that the spirit is this, this principle of unity in diversity or diversity in unity. And the spirit's work is to make us one but one in the sense that we are amazingly different. So when the Spirit works in your, your life, um, he draws you together to other Christians, so you feel a bond with them that, that is unlike any other bond you can experience, and the, the, the depth of relationships you can have with other Christians, even though you've only met them for five minutes, are amazing. You know, you go to another part of the world, and you, you bump into Christians from Africa or Asia or Australia, or whatever, you suddenly feel there's a bond there. You, you belong together, and yet you're incredibly different. And I, th- I find that a, that a really sort of encouraging and wonderful thing. That actually, as I as the Spirit works in my life, I'm not going to become a clone of everybody else. But neither am I going to get become a, a complete individual isolated on my own. I'm going to find an amazing bond with other people. But I will also develop exactly who I am, and, and God will give me gifts and, and abilities that are different from everybody else. So I re- I find I really value that that aspect of the theology of the Spirit. This is the Spirit of unity and diversity, diversity and unity. Well, that's of course precisely on the model of the Trinity. God himself, uh, where you have <clears throat> Father, Son, and Spirit being precisely different, but utterly united. Uh, and the unity in no way detracts from, in fact, it adds to uh, the distinctness and the difference of, of the persons of the Trinity. And that's what we're being drawn into. And that's why we're not going to lose our identity and our distinctness and our difference and our separateness by becoming united with God and with one another. Uh, that's the guarantee that we're not going to merge uh, or find alienation, um, which I think is a real... And what, what I love about the um, thing of the unity and the spirit in terms of operating it and practice is the whole intermingling that seems to be here, actually, in 1 Corinthians, between the gifts of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit. And, you know, obviously, classically, in 1 Corinthians 13, you've got love, which is, you know, one of the fruit of the Spirit in the middle of the two passages about gifts. And that's what I understand. We who live or trying to live by the Spirit, I see my job as being two things. One is I'm trying to develop the most fruit possible. And then I'm also trying to develop the most of the, the, the gifts that God's given me possible. But there's an intermingling in the way that they operate. And I love that because I think it helps bring the unity about in practice. I've got, sorry, three, three other quick things to say about unity and how to do it. <clears throat> One is to remember the difference between that which is primary and that which is secondary. And too often we fall out 
uh, over things that are secondary and divide over them. We should only divide over those things which are absolutely essential to the Christian faith and hold the rest together in tension if we need to. The second thing um, is the great advice of Oliver Cromwell, uh, which is, I beg you, by the bowels of Christ, consider it possible that you might be mistaken. Uh, And the third is prayer. Uh, It's very difficult to fall out with somebody you're praying for. Thank you. Uh, Right, which question shall we go on to next? Let's have a look. Um, Any advice for us, Rod, over there? Well, I think you've had an easy time so far. So I think you should should go for the uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 22 to 25. Are they contradicting each other? Oh, yeah, okay. So tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, prophecies for believers not for unbelievers, but then it goes and seems like he turns it around and makes it the other way around. So... Are tongues for believers or unbelievers? Uh, do you understand that question? No. <laughs> okay, well, let, let me read the passage for you. So, tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but Can for give, unbelievers. Give, give the references you're going 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. Mm-hmm. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not not understand comes in while everybody's prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. So the point is, I guess, that at the beginning of that passage, it sounds like he's saying that tongues are for unbelievers and prophecy is for believers. But he then goes on to say, actually, prophecy is quite good for unbelievers and the other way around. So what's going on in that passage? Archie? Archie? Well, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to agree with your answer, Mike. You haven't heard it yet. I haven't thought it up yet. Well... The key, I think, is the little verse uh, beforehand... Well, I need to get the microphone down here um, so I can look down at the text. Uh, in verse 21, Paul says, um, In the law it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Uh, it's a reference to um, the threat that if Israel does not repent, uh, it will go into exile. It will be surrounded by people of strange tongues, um, the Babylonian tongues. Uh, and that will be God speaking to them uh, in, in judgment, basically. Uh, and I think he, he's basically saying in, in that sense, in that warning sense, in that judgment sense, uh, it's uh, not for believers, it's for unbelievers. Uh, normally it's, it's, it's for believers where it's a, a sign of, of our relationship with God, him talking to us, us talking to him. In that particular sense, it doesn't apply to Christians, it applies to non-Christians. And that's why you get a distinction and a difference at that point. Thank you. Any more to was that? Was that the answer that you agreed that's with? That's what I wanted uh, to agree with. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you couldn't have said it first, really. <laughs> yes, that's right. And the thing about prophecy, I think, is um, he's saying 
that prophecy is for believers, not for unbelievers. In a similar sort of sense, he's, he's actually saying that um, the prophecy in its immediate sense is something that speaks to believers. Now, if you look in a secondary sense, it can be for unbelievers, in the sense the unbeliever can come in and think, wow, there's something amazing going on here, and, and can, can be brought into to, to faith through that experience of the prophetic, whether it's prophetic preaching or a prophetic word. Um, and it's an interesting definition of prophecy. This is prophecy that's something that goes... You know, that the secrets of his heart are laid bare. That's what prophecy does. And that's one of the tests of a true prophecy from a false one. And the false prophecy just falls on deaf ears and you think, that's all right, but it doesn't really, go, doesn't really kind of uncover any secrets. But true pro- prophecy has that sense of, yeah, it speaks to the, the heart. So I, I, in, in, to my mind, I think what he's saying there is that actually prophecy um, is something which primarily is there for believers. It's speaking to the church. But that unbelievers can kind of come in on it it's a sort of secondary sense by being part of the church and, and, and hearing and encountering something in the prophetic when they come in. So I think that's how I'd understand it. Okay, let's uh, go on to another, maybe just one or two more and then we'll, we'll finish. Yeah, how about um, portions of grace and the fullness of the Spirit? Who was asking that one? If we have the fullness of the Spirit, but we've only been apportioned grace. Is that preordained, and does that mean that the gifts are apportioned as well, and how? I'll have an initial kind of general stab, and then um, see where we go from there. It seems to me that what is really key is that we don't have all the gifts. None of us, no one of us has all the gifts. Why? Which is an answer to one of our other questions. Can you have all the gifts? I think the answer has to be no. Because that, yes. would be, that would be defeat the whole point of it. Because the gifts are given not just for an individual, but they're given for the whole church. And that's, but sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. That's <laughs> and, and, and they're given precisely so that we need one another and belong to one another and have to attend to one another in order to be built up. If I, if I had all the gifts, I wouldn't need you. <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but it wouldn't be good for me. Um, and it wouldn't be good for you because part of your purgatorial calling uh, is to engage and attend to me. Um, I, I remember when I was uh, doing what God's doing now and I was on placement um, at a church in York uh, and I was, one of the things I wanted to learn about was, was children's work and well, I, so I attended all the kind of children's work they did. And one of the things they did one Sunday morning was they um, got tried to put children up into pairs uh, and got them... It got one of them blindfolded, and they had to go through a kind of little maze, blindfolded, and of course they bang, banged into everything. Probably health and safety wouldn't now allow it. Um, and then they got them to do it with the other person guiding them through. Uh, so they didn't bang into anything, and they got through uh, safely and, and, and easily. And it was a way of just trying to, A, to build up trust between the different people in the, in the group, uh, but be to make the point that you need somebody else uh, and you need to trust somebody else as you go through. And, and that's what the gifts are doing. A has this gift and B has that gift and C has the other gift so that A, B and C are bound together uh, and cannot ignore each other and cannot exist without each other if they want the fullness of the Spirit uh, to be manifested within them and within the community to which they belong. Well, I love, I love that, to being apportioned by grace, because I love the cold grace thing in terms of the gifts. And it, what it reminds me of is that it, um, it, 
it's God and it's God's gifts. And um, I, I think there's a, in terms of, again, operating them, I find there's a, a line between um, being confident enough in the gifts that God may have given you to step out in them, but also holding them lightly enough that it's all about God, it's all God's grace, that actually um, that takes the pressure off me. In fact, that's what enables me to try them, knowing that if it doesn't work, in inverted commas, uh, actually uh, it's, 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 it's God's work and not, not mine. And I think one's uh, constantly trying to remember uh, that it's really God's and it's his grace and he can do what he likes, really. And if it doesn't work, it's his fault. Absolutely. <laughs> Obviously. I think the, the other thing to remember is um, the, the Greek word for, for, for grace is the word charisma, which comes from the charis, which is, which is grace, and um, or the, the plural is charismata, so we think of that, that's what the gifts are. And uh, that draws attention, I think, to the fact that these the spiritual gifts, as we call them, um, are, if you like, gifts of grace. Um, I think there's a couple of things about that. It, the kind of apportioning thing, it's it. Um, when we have a gift, as we've been saying, you, you don't have the, all of the gifts, and precisely for the reasons Mike's been saying, because that would mean we wouldn't need each other and that would defeat the object. Um, but when we get a gift of grace like that, it is real grace. It's not just a part of it. Um, it's a bit like you know when the you know when the, the astronauts went to the, the moon, they kind of picked up moon rocks and they they brought it back, and, and um, scientists seen and analysed the, the moon rock and so on. Now they didn't bring back the whole moon with them, but they did bring back real moon. This was the real thing. And uh, it strikes me, as, it, maybe it's a, rather bad, but little might help as an analogy. When we get these gifts, they are real gifts of grace. They are real grace. It's not just sort of partly grace, a little bit of, uh, of grace that doesn't give us the real thing. But it gives us a, 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 you know, a real grace which is given to us. This, um, and I think th- these gifts of grace effectively are um, abilities that go beyond our natural abilities. I think that's another thing to grasp about. Um, charismata gifts of grace. Grace goes beyond <laughs> nature. Um, we have certain gifts by, by nature, the way we're born, our personalities, um, we're good at certain things, but these are particular abilities that go beyond that, that enable us to do things that we would not normally be able to do in our own um, strength and ability. And you can, again, it's, sometimes it's easier to recognize that in other people than it is uh, in yourself. So I think that's, that's um, something of what it means about that. It's interesting the relationship, isn't it, between natural gifts and, and spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I like to think that, that my main gift is, is teaching. Now, you know, if I, I could do a reasonable after-dinner speech on a good day, if I prepared long <laughs> hard enough, um, the difference between that and preaching is actually preaching into people's situations, the kind of prophetic preaching that, that, that Graham was talking about earlier, that there are times when uh, things that you say that you have absolutely no idea of people's situations but it somehow speaks into them um, what is partly what I was saying uh, earlier on about uh, standing in the council of God <laughs> and if you've done that then you're going to speak into these situations that is something that I cannot do I cannot control I have no say over um, it's only through a prayer and be the work of the spirit <laughs> uh, that turns a natural gift into something um, more powerful than that and more effective on a different realm than that I guess that's also the role of our um, faith in it as well, is it? That we we step out and are trusting and, um, you know, uh, that's what I find so frustrating in some ways about the whole sort of Christian ministry. I used to be in sales where you could quantify, you know, if you did this and this and this, you could get the sale. It it doesn't work with the Christian, (laughs) especially in operating the gifts, because um, uh, uh, God seems to operate how he wants. And it's... um, uh, 
mightily frustrating at times, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It just means we have to step out in faith. There's something which worries me a lot about the unfairness of it all when uh, uh, when one thinks about apportioning. And I'm particularly thinking in terms of ministry, ministry where and healing, the gift of healing, in that I think, well, I've prayed a lot for the gift of healing. Hopefully, I've got a bit of it. But I know that there are some people who've got tremendous gift of healing. Now, if, if somebody comes up to me asking for healing, whether inner healing or physical healing, and I obviously uh, pray with them, but I'm only of the vessel of the Holy Spirit. So uh, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit. So why should I be less effective than the chap next door to me praying for somebody because that other chap has somehow got much more of a gift of healing? And it worries me a great deal. Okay. I think it goes back a little bit to what we were saying earlier on about the different kinds of gift, and that, that's the, precisely the, the, the problem I think they had in Corinth, that certain people were saying, because we've got these great gifts, we're more important than the other people. And um, so point one, I think, is we may value the gift of healing more highly than the gift of administration, because we think, oh, yeah, I'd love to have that gift, but I've only got this boring administration gift. As I said, that's not the way that God sees it. And uh, part of the calling there may be to recognize, well, if I don't have that particular gift, well, what, what, what gift has God given me? And, 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 and to, to, to recognize that and to maybe ask your friends about it and to be, to be pleased with the gift that God has, has given. Because in some ways it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a slightly odd thing to say to God, well, you know, I'm, I'm really not very pleased with the gifts you've given me. I want his ones, please. Thank you very much. Um, I think the other thing about it is that, um, again, there's been a, Quite an important part of the tradition of thinking about spiritual gifts in the history of the church to uh, to think about the you know how you receive the gifts and it, it, what sort of um, qualities we need to be able to receive them and and um, uh, I was reading some uh, a chapter by Raniero Cantalamessa the um, uh, preacher of the papal household writing about this and he was saying how um, how the kind of three qualities that we need to be able to exercise the gifts well uh, and to receive the gifts are the qualities of, of what he calls a uh, obedience, humility, and love. Those are the qualities that enable you to both receive gifts and to exercise them well and wisely. Uh, obedience to those around us in authority. Um, the gifts, uh, you know, a prophetic gift which is out of control, which doesn't listen to anybody who says, actually, no, I don't think that's a word from the Lord, is, is, a, is, a, is a dangerous thing. So people with a prophetic gift need to, to recognize those in authority over them. Um, humility, that humility to, to bow before others who, who have a gift that we don't have, to be able to say, well, that's great that you've been given that gift and that doesn't really bother me that much if I don't uh, have it. And then, and then love, as we were talking about the 1 Corinthians 13 that comes right in between Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, um, that whatever gift you have, it has to be exercised in love. And I find that a, a helpful um, sort of framework for thinking about how gifts are received, how they're exercised, and, and how I cope with the same frustration as you have from time to time. You know, I wish I had that person's gifts, and why have I just got the ones I've got? That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.